0: Welcome to Techno Views, a new podcast featuring major figures in the humanities and social science on topics in the intersections of techno science, culture and society in Asia and beyond. I'm Loretta Lowe, Assistant Professor in Anthropology at Durham University in the UK. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Stephen Harrell. Professor Emeritus of Anthropology and Environmental and Forest Sciences at the University of Washington, where he taught from 1974 to 2017. Professor Harrow has conducted ethnographic and interdisciplinary fieldwork in Taiwan and China. And in this interview podcast, we are going to dive deep into his latest book, an Ecological History of Modern China, published by the University of Washington Press. Steve, welcome to Technoviews.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So it's a very large book, but I enjoy reading it so much. I guess my first question is uh, something that you've mentioned early in the book, which is about uh, environmental history and ecological history. So environmental history of China is a rapidly growing field. And in the book, you said ecological history is more than another name for environmental history. Can you tell us more what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I think the subject, the subject matter of, the, of environmental history and ecological history tend to be the same. The difference lies in the approach. Um, ecological history takes a systems approach that is derived from uh, systems ecology or resilience ecology, and sees all the variables that I name in the book, you know, trees, water, air, pollution, movies, art, politics, uh, culture, and sees them interacting with one another, just like the different actors in an ecosystem act with one another. So it is environmental history, but it's environmental history in a particular kind of conceptual framework.
0: Hmm. So apart from what you've just talked about from a different perspective, analytical framework, if you like, and also the difference in chronological scope. How does your ecologically informed approach differ from say, uh, Mark Elvin's The Retreat of the Elephants or Judith uh, Superior's Miles War Against Nature?
1: Well, with regard to Mark Elvin, he's um, been a very conventional, very learned historian of China uh, for a long time. But he takes a really linear view of the history. In other words, he sees the last 3,000 years of Chinese history as a single progression toward impending disaster. He had an interesting early article before he wrote the book called 3,000 Years of Unsustainable Growth. Well, my first reaction is 3,000 years, that sounds, you know, that's a pretty good record. Most things don't get sustained that long. But he sees this as a linear progression, and he really is not concerned with a kind of feedback loops, uh, particularly uh, negative feedback loops, self-correcting feedback, that the ecological history approach would take. Now, the ecological history approach, of course, uh, things can go into positive feedback chains of self-reinforcing. But Elvin seems to take that as a kind of a, a linear progression that happens for granted. And mine is more things interacting with, with one another in, in loops and chains, as far as uh, Judas Shapiro's Mao's war against nature, she really begins with the political economy and takes that uh, particularly policy as the prime mover and the ecosystem or nature as the thing that it affects. And so we see policies affecting nature rather than feedback between uh, nature or the natural world, the biological world, and, and the politics. And again, it's also a kind of a, a single uh, linear uh, um, progression uh, in which the politics ruins the ecosystem. And once again, I'm more um, agnostic about that. You know things can feed back. Uh, they can get better. They can get worse. They certainly change. But um I think the the big difference with both books is that my approach is system, systemic, mm-hmm. uh, deriving from systems theory, and theirs is linear, dev- deriving from conventional history.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I can't really think of another book that takes such systemic approach and looking at. Not only the impact, but also the feedback loop, and also you mentioned about the cultural and institutional buffers, so let's dive into the book. So what I find really interesting, especially in the second part of your book, is uh you talk about the ecological disruptions that uh that development has brought to the land, water, and food of china and I was particularly struck by the chapters about food. In which you mentioned that although China remains largely self-sufficient in terms of food, it imports a large amount of soybeans primarily for use as livestock feed. And this revelation was quite shocking to me because I had never thought that soybeans, the soybeans that I love and I really enjoy so much are used to feed pigs and you know edibles so it sounds incredibly wasteful to me what are your thoughts on this
1: well the first thing is it's new people used to feed pigs table scraps garbage uh, things that they'd harvested in the field that they couldn't eat sometimes they would actually grow some kind of crop for partially for pig feed but the pigs were part of a local system again, that included these feedback loops. Uh, you grow food, you eat part of it, um, you deposit manure, the pigs deposit manure, the human manure and a pig manure come together into a pool, combine that with straw, you put it on the field, that provides nitrogen for the crops, and there's a circular closed loop uh, kind of economy. But you can't do that and have a lot of meat to eat. Uh, you can have a little, uh, but people now want a lot. Uh, Chinese people now uh, consume about half the animal protein that Americans do, and Americans consume way too much. And the uh, it's about five times as much animal protein per capita as they consumed in 1980. Well, there's no closed feedback loop that can accommodate that much pork. So you have to feed the pork uh, something besides garbage table scraps and you probably need some kind of fertilizer other than just the pig manure uh, in order to uh, fertilize the fields. But even then you can't produce enough feed. So you have to import the the pig feed. And what the great majority of the pig feed uh, that's that's imported is soybeans, which provide the protein part uh, of the pig feed. And most of those are grown in Brazil, number one, United States, number two, Argentina, number three, A little bit in Canada, a little bit in Russia, a little bit in Bolivia. But what it means is that in, in many ways, China is exporting the environmental changes that happen when you convert a forest or a savanna to, to a bean field. And China imports about 80% of its soybeans, and almost all of those are going to pig feed. A few of them go into those delicious snacks, you know, but that's probably like 1% or 2%. Uh, the other thing that China imports for pig feed increasingly is corn, although it's growing a lot more corn than it used to, and people consume almost none. Uh, and that, almost all that goes into pig feed. But unlike soybeans... Only about 10 to 20 percent of the corn um, actually is um, imported, and the rest is grown domestically.
0: Mm -hmm. And in that chapter, when you talk about soybean, and you also mentioned something about milk. So I think the Chinese people's new appetite for milk is also extremely interesting, and actually, many scholars have written about it. And uh, meanwhile, I think uh, both in the UK and in the United States, people are turning to plant-based milk. And neither seems to be a sustainable solution to me. What do you think?
1: Well, on, on the one hand, um, dairy products, that is say cow's milk to a lesser extent, uh, goat or sheep milk is the most efficient way to convert uh, raw calories uh, that, happen in in plant crops to uh, animal protein uh for for human consumption it's way more efficient in this conversion than um any other uh you know any kind of meat or fish um so dairy is is the, is the best thing from that standpoint uh but at the same time as we all know uh, cows take uh, a lot of uh, land for pasture um and if people are drinking milk uh, then there have to be more cows, and that means more land uh, put into pasture. In fact, it gets to the point, and it has done that now in the United States and in much of Europe, where cows don't go on pasture at all. They're fed uh, crops that are grown, uh, corn, sometimes even soybeans, uh, that, uh, and then they're kept in the barn. And uh, large dairies, the cows go back and forth from the milking parlor to the barn, the milking parlor to the barn, and they never see grass but i think you know it's the same kind of thing as pork it's a matter of quantity uh a little bit of dairy products a little bit of meat there's nothing wrong with that um the the problem is uh it gets to be too much and and so this is a this is something that china hasn't gotten to yet because they still consume way way less dairy products per person than for example english or or germans or or dutch um But it it, it could reach that and the other side of it, of course, that people are all worried about is the so-called question of uh, lactose intolerance uh, where um, many people genetically in in parts of Asia uh, don't have the gene that produces lactase, which you could break down lactose. And supposedly that means you have all sorts of digestive problems uh, when you consume dairy products. But in fact, some people do, and some people don't, and there are people who don't have the gene who seem to be able to drink milk, you know, just fine. As far as plant milk, well, why bother? Uh, You know, if you want, uh, why do you want, if you want oats, uh, eat oatmeal. If you want almonds, eat almonds. Uh, You know, if you want rice, eat rice. Uh, You know, why convert it into something like milk? Uh, it seems to me it's a kind of a waste of time and energy.
0: I think the reason people do it is they either can't tolerate uh, the cow milk or they, they are uh, vegetarian or vegans. And I I think that leads me to ask the next question, which is about veganism. Do you think veganism is the way to go for uh, in terms of sustainability? I You
1: know, it's virtuous. Uh, for individual persons to be vegans, there are some uh, things you have to watch your diet much more closely mm-hmm. in order to get all the nutrients, but you can do it. You know, the Aztecs did it, uh, with corn, beans, and squash, uh, the three sisters. So it's uh, it's very possible to do. Uh, the problem is people aren't going to do it. Uh, how are you possibly going to convince 1.4 billion people who see themselves as a you know, with all the problems of today's society, today's culture, today's pollution, at least they can eat meat whenever they want to, unlike their great-grandparents who could get it at New Year's if they were, you know, not too poor. And you're going to convince them, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, you should go back to eating even less meat than your great-grandparents did, you know, for the sake of the planet. That's that's not going to happen. So if individuals want to be vegans, then, you know, that's great. but I don't think you could ever convince a population uh, not to eat uh, at least dairy products. Of course, there are lots of vegetarians, specifically upper-class, upper-caste people in India who are vegetarians, but they consume a lot of milk products. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you take the milk products out and so forth, I don't think you could ever transform a culture uh, to the point where people would do that. So it's not a quantitatively serious... Mm-hmm. Uh, solution mm-hmm. to these large scale problems of, of food and nutrition.
0: Right. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you call a CCCM um, agriculture, which is consolidate. Chemicalized and commercialized and mechanicalized. Am I right? Um, right. Agriculture and the alternative food networks. So as you may know, an increasing number of people have grown tired of the what they call the urban rat race. I have um, actually a few students writing a dissertations about that, and some choose to return to the countryside in pursuit of a more balanced lifestyle, and it is estimated that more than 11 million people in China had returned to rural areas from cities, with a significant portion being probably unemployed young individuals. Now regardless of their motivation, it seems that these urban residents have become the backbone from what I've heard of China's community support agriculture CSA movement, which you've also written about in the book. So um, I guess they, to some extent, they respond to Xi Jinping's call for revitalizing China's rural economy. And so there are a lot of things here. And I just wonder what what are your thoughts on this trend?
1: Well, it's one of several uh, similar trends. Uh, many of which are many of which are actually prompted I think by uh, fears about food safety uh, which are huge in China uh, there are a lot of legitimate food scandals there was the famous um, Digoyo uh you know uh, digogoyo uh, the um, um, returning the uh gutter oil. oil to yeah. the to the dining table yeah. mm-hmm. um and um and that was a real thing it wasn't really gutters uh, it didn't really come out of the gutters but it was reused oil it was dirty oil it was cooking oil scraped off of the fume hoods and you know all sorts of gross stuff like that and there have been others there was a the famous melamine scandal but in general urban people are suspicious of the food they buy, almost every, uh, all of the food they buy. So you start getting uh, a a craze for organic food. And the problem with organic food is you can go on Taobao and and buy these little stickers that says, you know, uh, organic food product. You can buy those for, you know, 5,000 for, for, you know, a hundred kuai, something like that. So uh, people they see organic and they don't trust it as being organic. Uh, they only trust it as being organic if they see it 's got holes in it or it's imperfect or something like that. So then you get farmers like drilling holes in their green peppers and and putting worms on the food uh, to make it look organic and then you get this cycle you know back and forth. The point is people don 't trust the food system, and they have good reasons for not trusting the food system. So there are all these alternative things. And one of them is uh, the community supported agriculture. Another one is farmer's markets. Um, and another one is the so-called uh, uh, the uh, urban people. So you farmers that are fairly close to a city, you can pay something at the beginning of the season and you can rent yourself a little plot and you can grow your own vegetables uh and the farmers will show you how to do it because you're probably really klutzy and you won't be able to do it unless the farmers help so um it's it, it's the csa is is one corner of or one variety of of this trend toward taking care of the fears or confronting the fears about food safety but also of course i think as it is in many countries there are people who return to the land uh, for kind of romantic reasons they think that uh, you know you we should be doing like our ancestors do we should know where our food comes from um, and one of the ways that you can do that is you contract with a farmer uh, who grow food for you The the one that i know best is outside Chengdu, um you can't just contract with him you have to come out and work for a day um, and get to know the farmers because people think it's more important to buy from someone you trust than it is to have some sticker that says organic uh, that they might have bought on Taobao or or they might have you know bribed the local official to give them an organic certification. And anyway, organic certification is expensive, and very small farmers can't do it. So I see this, you know, as something that's happening in China that's very much like what's happening in other parts of the world. Uh, people want to get more connected. Uh, to the food they eat, to the land that they live on, to the place that their food comes from. And this is a healthy thing. But again, like uh, a veganism, it's probably always going to be a minority thing. And it's probably always going to be associated with people who are affluent enough and educated enough to care about these things because they don't really have any, they're not really in any danger of not being able to get their next meal. So they're really looking for their next meal to be healthy, Mm -hmm. both in a personal sense and in a kind of ecological
0: sense. Mm -hmm. Wow, thanks for indulging me in a very interesting discussion about China's food future. It's something that as you know, I'm working on and I also know have colleagues who are working on uh, CSA, uh, you know, alternative food networks. So those people should definitely pick up the book and read those chapters. So now, sh- should we turn to one of your favorite topics? You know, as your former <laughs> students, I know it is demographics. So why don't you tell me some of your arguments about population growth in the book?
1: Well, it's a, it's been a trigger or it's been a motivating factor for the uh transformations that have happened in the food system and in the land in general, uh, in China in the last 75 years. Um, Of course, the first thing was that the reason China's population grew moderately, uh, say in the from the time of the Taiping uh, uprising in the 1850s until 1950 was that mortality was so high. And so people had lots of babies, but many of them probably three out of 10 didn't survive their first year. Uh, And uh, one of the first things that the communists did was to institute uh, effective public health programs, including vaccination, including uh, elimination of of certain uh, diseases, parasitic diseases. And so the population grew even faster. And of course, they were happy to have this because they felt like, you know, we need more people, you know, Uh, Judy Shapiro, in her book, talks about this slogan, rendo right? Uh, If uh, people are plentiful, then our strength is great. And so uh, population really exploded uh, between 1950 and 1957. Then, of course, came the Great Leap Forward, and there was a huge famine um, and probably 30 million excess deaths. Some people say 40, some people say 20 kind of a grotesque uh, counting game like we play with Holocaust and other, other huge tragedies in, in world history. Um, But uh, it picked up and the the, uh, population grew even more uh, after the Great Leap Forward was over um, until in the middle 1960s, uh, leadership finally began to think, you know, maybe we have too many people uh, or the population is growing too fast. But then this was overtaken by the Cultural Revolution, where people were weren't worried about much except the you know Cultural Revolution, and then in the '70s uh, you get the uh, late uh, sparse and few one-child uh, uh, program, and then the famous Jinhua uh, Yu or so-called one-child policy, and so on. But this growth of the population, and after all, we have six hundred million people at the beginning; we have a billion people. Uh, by 1990, this is almost a doubling, and we have a two and a half times from the beginning of the People's Republic to now. This is one of the things that keeps pushing all of these changes in food production and the production of other commodities because you've got to keep up with the population growth. And they really only just barely kept up, if you look at it on a sort of averaging out basis, uh, between 1950 and, and the early 1980s. It wasn't until after nineteen eighty that food productions lurched ahead of um of population growth uh and then you start you start getting these changes in the diet so it's all it, it, it's all related to to uh to one another
0: hmm. it really i can really tell it's your favorite topic <laughs> <laughs> uh for for listeners who are not like uh seeing the you know who are not seeing like the screen right now is uh yeah, but but nowadays China have a different problem. You know, people are not don't want to have babies. They are unwilling to have babies, and the CCP see it as a demographic crisis. And what do you think? Do you want to say more about this?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's a great thing uh, for the earth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we have uh, four times as many humans on the earth as we did uh, when I entered mm-hmm. uh, in nineteen forty seven, and. Uh, consumption standards are growing mm-hmm. and uh, we can't have as many people. I mean, there are all sorts of other problems uh, that are linked to it. Consumption standards are too high in, uh, you know, Euro-American countries or global north, if you want to call it that. Uh, and they're still too low in many parts of the world need, need to come up. Um, but eventually, of course, they will. And in every country, fertility ends up coming down when people reach a certain level of affluence. Now, it's happening so rapidly in China. You know, you see these pendulum swings, it's another kind of systems theory thing. You know, something goes too far and there's a negative feedback that sort of brings it back to a norm. But in this case, it's going to the other extreme. Uh, And fertility in China is now well under one, uh, one child born uh, per woman. And everybody's panicking. I say, oh my God, uh we we're not gonna have enough working people to feed the elderly. We're gonna have a whole fa- you know, whole nation full of old folks tottering around and and needing care. We're not gonna have as much innovation in the tech industry because we're not gonna have as many young people. Um and yeah, this is true, but at the same time, at some point fertility's gotta come down. We simply can't uh, you know, accommodate 20 or 30 billion people on this earth. And so it's necessary for the earth to remain habitable, that population decrease. And it's also inevitable as long as living standards uh, keep increasing and and educational standards, especially for women, you know, um, uh, are increasing in, in, in most of the world. So the problem is a soft landing. You know, the problem is if fertility goes down, too fast well then maybe these problems of elder care and medical care and not enough employment and innovation these might be uh, bigger problems but on the whole it seems to me that if uh, chinese people don't want to have babies um for the earth in the long term it's a good thing
0: hmm. now so i think uh, people who have read the book uh, many readers and uh commenters, they would agree that this is a book not only, this is not only a book about the ecological history of modern China, but it's really a, a momentous uh, documentation of the PLC's remarkable social changes and transformations. So do you see this as a culmination of your long career in Chinese studies?
1: Yeah, it's, it's the last big book I'll ever write. Uh, I, um, it's i started it out as uh, i've said uh and the uh, actually i said the preface to the book you know it started out as a as a conference paper uh for a conference on new approaches to chinese history and uh ended up getting expanded and expanded and expanded but yeah i mean i'll write a thing or two here or there you know um, i've just written a book review on equal literature and uh, that, that kind of thing but I'm i 'm pretty much done with Chinese studies as far as any big products big mm-hmm. projects go
0: mm-hmm. well, I guess then the next question has to be about the next project so uh Years ago, when I was, uh, I think it was my first year in Oxford, and I was in a dining hall, and I sat next to a retired professor, uh, who turned out to be Mark Alvin, which I didn't know at that time. So that was one of the most embarrassing uh, things that has happened. But anyway, we had a, a conversation, and he told me that he's retired, uh, but he said he show. Uh, so I guess that's true for you too. Can you tell us what's your, what you're working on? What's your next project? Uh,
1: well, I've uh, written a memoir, which I, um, it's not right yet, I'm gonna have to rewrite it, but it's, um, it is China related. It's a, it's a memoir about the uh, school that we helped start and fund in uh, Liangshan uh, in southwestern Sichuan, which ran from 2000 to 2016. And, uh, you know, it addresses the question of philanthropy Mm. uh, and is philanthropy really doing any good, but also I hope it provides some sort of local color uh, for people to see what happens in, uh, you know, a part of China that is not very much in the news on the one hand it's not beijing shanghai on the other hand it's not xinjiang where people are being thrown in jail for no reason at all uh, including distinguished professors uh you know like uh, like our good friend uh, rahile so um it's uh, it's a part that, that kind of gets neglected um but at the same time i i think it's it's a bit of a critique of the i think um guilt motivated critique of a so-called white savior complex mm. um, uh, when it comes down to it i think we did do something good um mm. by by starting and maintaining the school um and it would have happened anyway but it would have happened later so there's that um but mainly i'm moving into local environmental history or ec- ecological history and I'm compiling material for history of agriculture here in the northwest corner, extreme northwest corner of the continental United States um, in uh, Whatcom County, Washington, and uh, showing how this same movement uh, towards CCCM agriculture uh, since the 1950s and 1960s happened a little earlier here than in China, how that has, promoted and distorted uh, commercial agriculture uh, in this part of the world. And also how there has been a kind of similar alternative food movement, small farmers growing, you know, good vegetables that there's even a farmer that grows luffas uh, Mm -hmm. out here and sells them. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, people, you know, starting young uh, organic uh, pig farms and sheep farms, uh, people transitioning from these big dairies that uh, have 2,000 cows that never see grass uh, and uh, selling off many of their cows and grazing them and then selling a specialized milk product. And uh, you know has the advantage of being able to do it at home as one gets older and uh, one doesn't necessarily want to be spending all that time uh, with jet lag uh, as one does when one is working, uh, working overseas. So, um, so, that's the next thing.
0: Right, sounds super productive for me, and you definitely no. you're definitely You definitely a terrible show. So um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today, Steve. I look forward to your next book.
1: Well, uh, I hope it will happen, and uh, thanks once again for having me. As usual, this, is, this has been fun.
0: Thank you. So you've just listened to an interview with Professor Harold about his latest book, An Ecological History of Modern China. Thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon.